friends. Um, for those of you that I know, hi. For those of you that I don't know yet, I'm Michelle, better known as JD's wife, typically in these circles. Um, as Alan said, we are part of the Southlands Brea community. We are parents to three teenagers. And part-time, when I'm not doing the mom stuff, I do some counseling on the side here in Brea. And I got an email from Christine saying, oh, um, we'd like to know if you'd like to speak this week. And here's the schedule. And it said, Michelle St. Bell, dash therapy. And I was like, uh, that's a really big topic. I don't know what to say to a bunch of pastors about therapy. But as I prayed on it and saw that the theme for this week is gospel standard, I thought, yeah, that that's good. And so what I want to do today is just chat through some things that I've started to see in the therapy room as a clinician with the help of Romans 8 and how we can think through what it means to love people well, um, mind, body, soul, spirit, all of it, as holistic people with the help of the gospel. Um, so as Alan said, uh, this is a second career, second uh, phase of work for me. I was a high school English teacher before I was a clinician and um, did the grad school thing. Then we moved our family here to California about um, four and a half years ago. And um, I made my way through the process that you have to make your way through uh, for licensure. And in that process, you're given lots of theories and interventions and modalities that um, the purpose of them is when people come to you, you can hopefully implement them and watch depression and anxiety and all other kinds of ailments reduce. Um, and for, for a while, that worked. And I was able to use things that I had learned in grad school, use things I'd learned in inter internship. And then uh, March of 2020, as most of you know, um, impacted many spheres of life in a way that I don't think any of us felt fully equipped to respond to. And so as many of you experienced in the church landscape, in the clinical room, I'm faced with people who are not coping. And I have this toolbox of interventions that sort of work, but sort of aren't working anymore. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, what do I do about this? What do I do about people who, they're not just not coping, they're really, really not coping. Um, and so as JD and I even would process at night what we're seeing in the church, what I'm seeing in the therapy room, there's this overlap of there's some people who seem to be doing okay. They seem to be resilient. And then there's other people who seem to not be doing okay. And what's the difference between the two? And so as I thought and prayed on it, I thought there's got to be something central to the person who, yes, the world's going bananas and politics feels like it's gone bananas and all these things are happening around us and there's this very potent disease making its way through our communities. Um, and I was struck one day as I was sitting with a client, I realized I think the people who are doing well or who appear a little more resilient are the people who understand the gospel. And most of my clients arguably are believers, not all of them, 
But um, the faith construct is something that we talk freely about in the room because people know that I'm a believer. And then I get extra street cred because I'm married to a pastor. So, so they come to me um, assuming we're going to have the faith construct be a part of our time together. And we do. Um, but what I realized was that my clients who weren't doing as well, and I would say this is probably true of other people in our lives as well, were the clients who needed help remembering the gospel. And so I thought, okay, what does that mean for therapy? Um, what does that mean for the interventions that I use with my clients? What does that mean for the theories that I use to think through the soul and the heart and the mind? And I landed on these four paradigms, I guess, that became very helpful for me in my work with clients um, in uh, creating more, or not creating, but helping people to be more resilient as they made their way through these, these two years. And now we live with the residual impact of those two years. And so the four paradigms that I really think the Lord gave me were um, one, the identity of the human. So how do we understand what it means to be human, why we're here, why we were created? Um, the, the next is um, how we think about immorality and iniquity. So this idea of like, how do we understand sin and what does that mean for our mental and emotional health? Um, the third is how we think through injury. And by injury, I understand injury to, to encompass um, sin committed against me, abuse that I have incurred, um, what it means to live in a fallen world and see injury all around us and the impact that that has, and then the work of, of Satan in his desire to seek, kill, and destroy. Um, and then the fourth paradigm is immaturity. So how do we understand immaturity and growth, and how do we understand people who can go from being immature to mature disciples of the gospel. So as I thought through this, I thought, okay, so what does this mean as for me as a clinician? Uh, how is this going to impact my time with people? And one of the things that I realized, particularly um, through the pandemic, was because of this move home, most of my clients were being discipled by what they saw online or most of my clients, sorry, were being discipled by what they saw online. So um, they knew more about what other people thought about things than what Jesus tells us to think about things. And that has a massive impact on identity, maturity, how we think about sin, and how we think about um, what it means to be injured. So I'll go through the four paradigms just to give us an, an understanding together. Um, most of the clients that I sit with on a weekly basis struggle with anxiety, depression, social anxiety, struggles interacting with other people, um, things that are very core to what it means to be a human. And so when I ask my clients, who are you and why are you here, most of them don't know how to answer that question. And so this made me realize that people who understand that they are both created and adopted, which are two central parts to what it means for us as believers to have an identity. Those are the people who understand how to walk in the world and to walk in the world with a sense of resilience. And so there isn't really a clinical intervention out there or a modality that talks about creation and adoption, 
But when I walk my clients through this idea of what does it mean to be formed by a gospel-centered identity and how would that impact your low self-esteem or what you perceive to be a sense of not belonging anywhere, what would the gospel say about that? Because we're believers, we have a robust sense of the fact that we've both been created. Psalm 139 tells us none of us here is an accident. None of us is here not on purpose. All of us are here because we were, we were created in secret places and then knit together in our mother's womb. We have a holy design bred into our DNA. And the, the gospel of adoption that we read about in Romans 8 also tells us that we are radically adopted and we have an eternal purpose. And so when we understand a gospel-centered view of identity, we know that we, <clears throat> that we, that's the difference between living a life of an orphan or living the life of a son or daughter, which impacts the way we think about everything. So how might a biblical understanding of creation help a client who battles feelings of muddled sexual identity? Or a congregant who has a deep ang anguish of a never feeling like he or she belongs anywhere? How might the gospel understanding of adoption be a healing balm to the girl or boy who has never heard I love you from their earthly mother or father. The gospel removes shame from us and tells us that we belong better than any other clinical intervention could ever do for me in the room. Um, the next paradigm, the paradigm of iniquity, which is a super old word, or immorality. I needed four eyes, so I couldn't use the word sin. I love alliteration, I'm a former English teacher. So this is the category in which I understand my clients who have not yet come to know Jesus or are stuck in patterns of sin, toxic behavior, or addictions. Romans 8, 5 through 9 tells us, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And this scripture shows us that there's no way around the fact that a life that is not lived in submission to God is not a life that can flourish. The Bible is clear that if we indulge the flesh and live according to the flesh, we are hostile toward God and we will live in the fruit of the life that chooses sin. How might a gospel view of iniquity and immorality help a client or a congregant who's stuck in patterns of pornography, addiction, poor behavior, anger, hedonism? A gospel-centered understanding of iniquity and immorality is the difference between pride and humility, the difference between a life of licensure and a life of true freedom in Christ. Um, yesterday, I was sitting with a client who, and his wife who came to me maybe only four weeks ago, really successful financial planner in Brea, worth lots of money, um, maybe 55 years old and came to me because he has a, an addiction to alcohol and, and wants to kick it. His words are, I'd like to put it in its place. And he walked in, um, 
very successful businessman, walks in and says, okay, I've done the AA thing, don't like that. I've done this, don't like that. So can you give me, I need the steps. What are the steps we're going to do together so that I can kick this thing? And so as we sat together and we're chatting and I'm watching his wife, um, I can see him getting more and more agitated because I'm not moving quickly enough. I'm not giving him the homework. I'm not giving him the steps. And I said to him, tell me, tell me what you've tried to this point. And he walks me through AA and sponsors and all that. And I said, you know, how's that working for you? And he's like, well, it's not. That's why I'm here. I said, okay, but, but you want me to give you more of that. And he's like, well, what else is going to help? I said, well, let's think about that together. And he got angry. And I said to him, what's going on? He's like, I'm just so frustrated. I said, what are you frustrated about? He said, I can't kick this. I'm so successful in every area of my life. I, I have a goal, and I go for it, and I always get it. I have more money than I know how to spend. I have five beautiful children. I have a beautiful wife. It's true. She's beautiful. I have everything I want, and I can't kick this. And he hung his head, and I said to him, it sounds like willpower is how you've been able to accomplish everything in your life to this point. He's like, yes, I have no shortage of willpower. Why can I not kick this thing? And I said to him, well, it's good that that's the story of the gospel, right? That's why Jesus went to the cross. And he, his head was down. He looked up at me and said, what did you just say? And I said, well, it's good that that's the story of the gospel because if we could all do whatever we needed to do in sheer willpower, we wouldn't need the cross. And he looked at me and said, I have been a Christian for 36 years. I have never thought about that before. And so when it comes to, I mean, obviously an addiction to alcohol is serious stuff. But when the person understands what sin is doing to their life and the ability for their soul to flourish, it changes everything. And when they understand that willpower is never going to be enough for any of us to kick anything, that changes everything too. Then there's the paradigm of injury. So this is a tricky one because um, injury does include many terrible, 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 terrible things that people have had to endure. And I, I walk with clients every week who have had to navigate some of the worst stuff I've ever heard of in my life. And there is a place for that. Um, and there are clinical interventions that work with, with that are able to help people break free from the shame of some of that. But we are being discipled by a culture that talks very differently about injury and what it means to live in a broken world than what the gospel tells us. Our culture tells us that we are to cancel people who have wronged us. We are to put on blast those who disagree with us. We are to separate ourselves from those, of us, from those who have caused us pain. And we are to remove anything and anyone that we have decided is toxic. To be clear, in the presence of abuse, that is, of course, what we want to do. We want to protect people from being able to be abused anymore. But outside of the presence of abuse, this is an anti-gospel message. The message of canceling people and removing people who are hard to love 
is not a gospel message. Many of my clients have experienced abuse and neglect, and many of them, this side of heaven, will live with the trauma of that. But what would a gospel-centered view of suffering and eternal hope offer such a client? What does it mean for us to see our injury in the light of the gospel? How does the gospel convict and compel us to respond to those who cause us injury? Again, Romans 8 tells us, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. How will he also not with him graciously give us all things? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors, though. Through him who loved us, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Cancel culture and a polarized political society have left more people isolated, lonely, and angry, and not able to believe the best in one another. This has done nothing for the mental and emotional health of our people, my clients and the people in your churches. And we need to give them a more compelling way to understand suffering, the side of heaven. A gospel-centered view of suffering is the difference between victimhood and eternal hope and everlasting peace. If we know that we are living in a broken world where Satan is a roaring lion seeking to kill and destroy us and our families, we will respond differently to injury. And finally, immaturity. So in this category are my clients who need to move from being culturally influenced believers to biblically discerning believers. Many of you have maybe seen this soundbite online, but this last Passion Conference, Francis Chan, addresses, Passions for College Students, right? Addresses the the audience this year, and I'm going to read it to you because I don't think anyone can do a gospel spanking quite like Francis Chan. But he says, one of the most destructive practices of your generation is that you value your own thoughts way too much. When God says, my thoughts are not the same as yours, you want to look inside, you want to tell everyone else what you've been thinking and feeling rather than opening up the word of God and saying, oh, these truths are way beyond mine. How many of us have read the memes or had coffee with someone or watched the reels on Instagram of people deconstructing truth, finding every possible way to flourish just to the left or just to the right of what the authority of God says? How many of us are grieved by the client or the congregant who continues in mental and emotional anguish because he or she has decided that their version of truth, their more palatable version of obedience, is preferable. These people typically believe that they've arrived at an easier yoke that allows them to stay culturally relevant, when in reality, in my experience, I can't speak for everyone, most of these people who show up in my room are riddled with anxiety and depression, 
And they typically are the people who are the lowest in self-awareness and insight. They also believe that they construct truth and obedience to fit their preferences, when in reality, none of them, most of them, are not connected to Jesus, are not reading their Bibles, and have stopped coming to church. What might a gospel-centered view of Christian maturity for such people look like? It may be the difference between spiritual laziness and licensure and biblical obedience and submission to the authority of Jesus. And why does this matter? Because ultimately we know that a life that is in submission to Jesus and his word is a life of flourishing and peace. And most of the people who come to my office, I'm sure most of the people who ask you for coffee, are looking for peace. A gospel view of mental health is a gospel view of maturity and obedience. A gospel view of mental health recognizes that Jesus is the better healer always, better than any man-made intervention or therapeutic theory that I could have learned in grad school. Jesus knows that human flourishing and health happens when we understand that he is creator and author of all things, and we are created beings designed for relationship with him and others. A gospel understanding of mental health means we understand that deep soul peace cannot be apart from abiding in Jesus, obeying his commandments, and turning from sin. We also believe that enduring suffering and the work of Satan in the here and now is made tolerable in the knowledge that we eagerly await true rest and peace with him for all eternity. There's simply no substitute for living under the law of God the work of Jesus on the cross, and the power of the Holy Spirit that is inside of each of us. May we be pastors and practitioners who are moving people deeper and deeper into the gospel for their own good and their own flourishing. And as a last note as I land, one of the things that I've noticed, and this is a sobering thing for me and for JD as parents of three teenagers, when I sit with clients one of the first things you do when you work with somebody and you're trying to get your head with them, you're trying to get both your heads around why they have the ailments that they have. Typically, we go to family of origin and we look at, okay, what did family look like? What did parents look like? What are patterns that were in your family? What are rhythms that were in your family? And more often than not, I think I can safely say 90% of my clients were never given this paradigm from their Christian parents. They're from Christian homes, many of them from ministry homes. And when we talk about these four things in the room, it's like they're hearing it for the first time. And that's really sobering for me as a parent, because when I think about my children, who maybe will need to be in therapy one day because their dad's a pastor and I'm a therapist, but when I think about who do I want to be shaping and forming and discipling and counseling my children in these teenage years, it's me. I don't want them formed by other things. And so these are gospel paradigms that we can give our kids now while we're doing it for our congregants and our clients, but we can be doing this now so that our kids have a deep well of gospel resiliency in order to do life in a very hostile world.